So we're going to finish the, the account of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus, if you remember, Jesus uh, had word sent to him um, that Lazarus had died or Lazarus was sick, near death, and he doesn't come and try to do anything for, for, for a couple of days and then eventually gets there. Lazarus has been dead for four days and Mary and Martha are upset and they, they communicate to Jesus, if you, would, if you would have come, nothing, you know, our, our brother wouldn't have died. And, and then I think last week, uh, Freddie preached about the, the, the resurrection, Jesus calling Lazarus out of the grave and it kind of ends with Jesus telling them, uh, loose him and let him go. He had grave clothes on and so he... he tells uh, the people that were there, loose him, unbind him, untie him, and let him go. So that's where we're going to pick up. We're going to pick up right after that. And there's really no other clues about what happened after this. We don't ever hear, like, what, what, I mean, what happened right after? Did, you know, did they go celebrate? I mean, this is, has never happened before. Someone that was dead raised to life. And Jesus demonstrates his miraculous power in the life of this man. Uh, but before we get back into the text and read the verses that we're going to cover... This is how I kind of have to ask you a question. Have you ever had to communicate something to someone and they completely miss the whole point of what you're saying? Husbands? I'm not saying that your wife doesn't understand you. But, but I know there's times that can happen, right? Wives, I'm not saying your husband doesn't understand you. But, uh, you know, I think a lot of times our wives think that our, we don't understand them at all. And they're communicating, and Estelle knows when I'm checked in or checked out, for sure. She can tell visibly, uh, one of her, phrase, her phrases she says to me a lot is, is um, listen to me with your face. <laughs> and so, you know, you're communicating and you just realize they missed the entire point of what I'm trying to say here. Or maybe you do something, you ever tried to do something for somebody. Maybe you bought them something or you did an act of kindness for them and and they just missed the whole point of what you're trying to do or trying to say has that ever happened to you yes it happened to me well this is what we're going to experience in 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 the conclusion of this account of the raising of Lazarus every these these group of this group of people that we're going to read about they missed the entire point of what Jesus did but what is the what is the point behind the signs and the miracles that Jesus did. What's the point? What's the reason why Jesus came? And again, we've read this. Since we're studying in the Gospel of John, we've read this multiple times. We've come back to it because this is the core verse of the entire study in the Gospel of John. What is the point behind everything that Jesus did while on the earth? It's found in John 20, 30 through 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, the signs that we've read over and over again, the healing, the miracles, the words, his demonstration of his power. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the point. The title of this message is Don't Miss the Point. Don't miss the point. That's the point. That's the point. That's why Jesus came. He didn't come just to be a good teacher. There are a lot of good teachers in the world. He didn't come just to be a good teacher. He didn't come just to be a good man. There are a lot of good people in the world that do charitable deeds. Jesus fed multitudes, food. And people, there's other people that that can do that. Maybe not like Jesus did. (laughs) But but, uh, not many people can multiply fish and bread. 
but there's many people that will do charitable deeds, but that's not why Jesus came. He didn't just come to be a good man. He came so that we could see, so that humanity could see that he wasn't just a man. He came to demonstrate that he was the son of God, God in the flesh. He came to die on the cross to take our place so that we, through faith in his death, burial, and resurrection, can have, as it says here in verse 31, so that we may have life in his name. And not just life, breath, and oxygen in our lungs, but eternal life, forever life. By having faith in his name, by having trust and faith in him, we can have life through his name. And that's the point, that God would be glorified and that Jesus would be exalted and worshiped and that people would come to faith in his name and that they would have life in his name. That's the point. Don't miss the point. And these people right here that we're just about to read about, the Pharisees and the scribes and, and the Sanhedrin, the, the, the judicial system of the Jews, all the members of the Sanhedrin, they miss the point of Jesus continually over and over and over again. And we have read it many occasions, right? If you think back to the, this study on Wednesday nights, over and over again, we have account after account of Jesus doing miracles. But sometimes he would do a miracle on a, on a Jewish against the Jewish tradition on the day that he shouldn't be doing something and, and the religious leaders can't handle that because he's breaking their traditions. And so they, they, they can't see the trees for the forest. Is that how you say that, right? They can't, they can't see reality right in front of them. And let, so let's pick up. Lazarus has just been raised. Last thing that we read, loose him and let him go. Lazarus, come forth. Let's think about it for a second. Lazarus has been dead for days. And when Jesus goes to the tomb, what does Mary say? Or Mary or Martha says, says he's going to stink. He stinketh, if you have the King James Version. <laughs> By this time, he stinketh. And so he tells him, roll away the stone. And he calls him forth. Can you imagine what that would look like? Group of people. Now, again, I, I think maybe I touched on this uh, when I, I, I think I started covering that section. Um, they had professional mourners, weepers and wailers. Jews would have that. And they would hire people to come and cry with the family. And it was just a traditional thing that would happen. It was this big commotion. So this wasn't just like four or five people at the tomb of Lazarus, Lazarus and Jesus calling him forth. This is, this, is, this is a lot of people. This is 20, 30, 40, 50 people that are there watching this and probably more from the community that are coming around to see. So Jesus calls him forth and he walks out. He walks out and he has burial clothes on. He has burial clothes. He's been wrapped. He might look like a mummy walking out. And Jesus says, loose him, unbind him, untie him and let him go. And then the story just stops. And it picks up right here. Verse 45 of chapter 11. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Ding, 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 you win the prize, (laughs) right? I mean, if somebody does that, I mean, this is the obvious conclusion of what you should do whenever you see somebody call a dead man out of the grave and they walk out. You should believe in him. And so many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary had seen him, seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees the people that hated Jesus and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. 
If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, the chief priest Caiaphas, who was, excuse me, the high priest, said to them, you know nothing, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but, for, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to, to the uh, Passover of the Jews. It was at hand, and many went up. Let's go back. Is that, we, something doesn't seem there. So Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. My screen down here wasn't working <laughs> properly. Now, when the pastor of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves, they were looking for Jesus, saying to one another as they stood in the temple, well, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now, the chief priests and the, and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was he should let them know that they might arrest him so that's what happened after jesus was uh, called lazarus out from the grave and so what we want to do is i have just three quick thoughts here about after a miracle takes place a dead man is raised what do we see what what can we learn from this account right just those few verses 45 through 57 what do we see the first thing is this we see that unbelief Unbelief is blinded to reality. Unbelief is blinded to reality. Let's look back at the text. John eleven forty five through 47. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. They weren't blinded to reality. These ones that believed, they saw the reality of Lazarus coming out of the grave and the reality of the miracle convince them as it should that this is not just an ordinary man ordinary men do not call dead people out of the grave and they believed in him that that is taking what you what, what is true and right and and it levels with reality you see you're seeing correctly they saw correctly but unbelief does not see correctly they're blinded to reality and that's the next group but some of them this is the group that they do not see reality correctly They went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, they're blinded, and they gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Now that word signs that the Pharisees and the scribes used here, when they say he performs many signs, this is what that word sign means. It it means an an event which is regarded as, as having some special meaning. Something which points to a reality of greater significance. So the Pharisees, when they say he performs many signs, they're acknowledging that Jesus is doing miraculous things. They're acknowledging he's doing things that are pointing to a greater reality. But at the same time, they're they're blinded. They don't want to admit who he is. They don't want to do that. They're blinded to the reality that's right in front of them. And unbelief will do that. Have, have you ever known someone like that? Blinded to the truth? You try to get the cr- things across to them? Sometimes I think my kids, unbelief has them blinded to reality. Right? 
You're trying to get them to, to understand something. You're telling them, you know, there's t- there are teachers here in the room. You're trying to teach kids in school, and it just they seem to be blinded to reality, right? And you're trying to communicate something. Have you ever had a loved one? They're just blinded to the truth in front of them. They, 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 you know that if they continue down the path they're going, that there's harm, there's hurt, there's pain, there's rejection, there's suffering, but they just can't see. They can't see the truth right in front of them. And this is the Pharisees and this is the scribes. They see Jesus as the miracle worker. They are acknowledging he's doing all these signs. But why aren't they like that first group? Why aren't they believing? Why don't they believe like the first group? It's because they're blinded. They're willfully ignoring the reality. But, but there's influences that are, that, that are coming into the life that are causing them to not see. You know, all of us have had people in our life, friends, family members, coworkers, that we try to get across to them the truth of the gospel. But it's like, it's like it falls on deaf ears. You have experienced that? Falls on deaf ears. It's like you're trying, and you just see, it's like you're, you, you, you look at them, you talk to them, you're speaking truth into their life, and you just see a blank stare. They're just not listening. They're not comprehending. It's because they can't hear yet. Because something has their gaze. Something has their attention. Something is drawing them away from the truth. Something has captured their heart. And something has captured the heart of these Pharisees and these scribes, and we're going to get to it in, in my second point here. But... They're blinded. So I just have to ask you a question. What, what, what are some things, what are, common, what are common things that blind people from seeing things from a godly perspective? What are some common things that blind people from seeing God correctly, from seeing that they need God, from seeing that God is the answer, from seeing that Christ is the answer in their life? What are some common things that blind people? You can talk to me. Relationships. It's a good one. Pride, absolutely. Your sin. Did Chuck, did, did, did Chuck put the list down on the notes? Chuck. <laughs> Chuck. This is supposed to be like a quiz. All right, well, since there's no reason to even. You're a teacher and you cheated. <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. I just had to say that. that was, you, you set yourself up for that one. Um, but seriously, let's go through this. Now that you have the list. I mean, is there anything else not on this list that you, you would want to say? Fear. Fear. Absolutely. Fear can blind you. Rules and regulations. Okay. All right. Anything else? All right. Well, my list that I came up with that Chuck put on the list. We're going to work on that. Um, sinful pleasures that blinds people we've all experienced that you know you shouldn't do it you know what the truth is you know that your mother said do not take the cookie from the cookie jar but it is so pleasurable to eat that cookie right the chocolate I love chocolate cookies I love chocolate in general and just you know it's good and it tastes good and, and, and you've experienced that pleasure before and so it's drawing you back but you know you shouldn't but you're blinded. You're blinded because your flesh desires what your flesh wants and it blinds people. They, they, they get caught in sinful pleasures and it's, they, it's just they cannot break out of it unless the power of the Holy Spirit works in their life. Sinful pleasures blind people. Money and possessions. When people have a lot of money and they're able to buy lots of possessions. What do they begin to think? 
money buys you happiness. They begin to think they don't need God. They begin to think that, hey, I'm, I've got money. I've got all that I need. I can buy whatever I want to fill the void in my life. And so it blinds them to the reality of who they really are. That's what happens. It can blind you. Again, power and influence next. That goes along with money and possessions. Typically the money, people that, typically the people that are powerful and influential have money and possessions, right? Go hand in hand. And so you just, people that have influence and power, they feel like that, that they're almost like God. I don't need God. And I'm blinded to, they, they are blinded to the reality like these scribes and Pharisees. They're in positions of power and they're blinded to the reality that they are, de, they are depraved without God. That every bit of influence that we have in this life is a trust that's been given to us from God. But sometimes we can be blinded by our power and influence. Being offended, offense is a blindness that can, it's like a black cloud that covers our heart. And we're blinded to the reality around us and we're offended at at friends, at loved ones, at coworkers, people that have hurt us. And we're blinded from the truth because we refuse to forgive we, we say you know what it's just too hard i can't do it i'm not going to forgive i'm not going to forgive and that and that offense clouds our life and there's people that don't come to faith in christ because they maybe maybe they've been hurt by somebody that was a christian or by a spiritual leader and there's a cloud of offense in their heart and, over their life and it keeps them blinded from the truth relationships we said that earlier that's such a hard one such a hard one. You know, let's say you desire to follow the Lord and it could be a relationship with somebody that, that you love, somebody that you're dating or, or, or want to get married to or it could be just a friend that you have. And if you desire to follow the Lord and to follow after him, but you're involved in a friendship or, or a relationship with someone that doesn't, look, people will, will rationalize it all the time. And they'll say, well, you know, I'm just, I'm going to win them over. I'm, I'm, I'm going to convert them. And, and, and they, 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 they suppress what they know is true and they're blinded to the truth of God's word and that relationship ultimately will pull them down. You know, it's a lot easier, it's a lot easier to be pulled down. Just imagine that if you're the Christian in the relationship, you're with somebody that's not a Christian and you're up here and they're down here, they can pull you down a lot quicker than you can ever pull them up. And you're trying to pull them up, and you're trying to pull them up, and it's hard work, and all they have to do is just trip you up real quick. They can pull you down. And that's the picture. That's the picture. False religious systems blind people. They believe something that's not true. They, it's, it's, some, it's, it's an approach to try to get to God that's false. It's an approach outside of Christ, and it blinds people. Or, ultimately, the, the foundation of all of these things that are, that are used in sinful ways, it's the influence of Satan, who, who hates God's creation and wants to keep us blind and that's what we see that's what we see in 2 Corinthians 4 and so my question is this what do we pray for those that we know are blinded to the truth what do we pray how do we pray how should we pray and look we should pray we should pray without ceasing we should continually pray for those that we love that are blinded to what is true and what is right and what should we pray we see it in 2 Corinthians 4 verses 3 through 6 and even if our gospel is veiled People are blinded to it. They can't see it. It is veiled or, or blinded from their sight to those who are perishing. In their case, the God, lowercase g, Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, 
but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give, and this is what we pray, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what do you pray? You pray that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ would shine through everything in their life that's blinding them from seeing him. That's what we pray. Lord, let your gospel shine through the darkness. So that's what we pray. And these, these Pharisees and these Sadducees and the, 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 the rulers of the Sanhedrin, they're blinded to the reality of who Jesus is. And this is the first thing that we see. And this is, a, this is the tragedy of unbelief. This is the tragedy of unbelief. Of that unbelief is a position of blindness. And secondly, what we see here. Let's go back to the text. Let's go back to the text. So they said there. Let's go back to verse 47. Let's, let's get a, a running start there. It says, many of the Jews therefore... Many of Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And listen to verse 48. And if we let him go on like this, performing these signs, everyone will believe in him. What? Like they, they know. Like they know the obvious thing, Right? They know it's going to happen. And they, it's almost like they're acknowledging it. But listen to what is their motivation here. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the, uh, and, and the Romans will come because they were under Roman oppression. The Romans were letting them live in the province that they were in. And they were kind of their taskmasters and their lords. And they, they were looking for freedom through the Messiah. And the Messiah was right in front of them in Jesus Christ. But they were rejecting him. And so they said, if they believe in him, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What were they concerned about? Their position and who they are, their place and their nation. So the second thing we see in this is that empty religion is self-focused. Empty religion is self-focused. Unbelief blinds you to reality and empty religious experience is always self-focused. The religious system of the Pharisees and scribes had become empty. These were the ones that were supposed to be the caretakers of the law of God, the scriptures, the, the Old Testament Torah. They were supposed to be the ones, these, the priests, to, 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 to bring the revelation of God to God's people. But their religious systems had become empty religion. It had become empty. It was overcome by man-made traditions and self-centered motivations. An empty religion is only after one primary thing, self-gratification. Empty religion is focused on what can I accomplish. Look at my spirituality or look at my devotion to God. That's, that's, that's not Christianity. That's, that's a religious system of works-based righteousness where, where you're trying to check off a box of lists of things to do. That's not, that's not a relationship with Christ. That's empty religion. And empty religion always focuses on self. It's self-focused. What can I do? And, if, and, and any religious system that, that is not based on Christ is a, is a false religious system and, it, and it's empty and it ultimately points back to what you can do. And so you just start this pattern of trying to be good enough for God and checking off your boxes, trying to be spiritual enough, and ultimately what begins to develop is spiritual pride. And you begin to try to 
get attention from others because of who I am and what I do and, and, and what I've attained in my spiritual life. That is empty religion. This is where the Pharisees were. They, did, they had lost their connection with God. And they had created traditions that God never required of them. And they, and they wore those traditions and those customs as badges of honor. And it was self-focused. It was empty religion. Empty religion is self-focused. And Jesus calls them out on it. Let's look at Matthew 23. Jesus had no problem calling out the empty religion of the Pharisees. Matthew 23, 1 through 7. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. What does that mean, to sit on Moses' seat? It means they sit on the seat of the law of God. And they are called to be the caretakers of the law. The Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They sit on Moses' seat. Listen to what Jesus says about these religious leaders. He says, so do and observe what they tell you. And so what is, this is so good. What is God saying there? He's saying that my law is good. Do what they tell you. Because they're speaking my law, right? But not what they do. Don't do their works. Observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders where they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds, and here's the self-focused part here. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad. And what was a phylactery? A phylactery was what the scribes and Pharisees would wear. It was like a leather pouch. And in the Old Testament, it talked about how they needed to, uh, in Deuteronomy, it talks about how you had to have the word of God ever before you. And so they took it literally, and so they would take five portions of the Old Testament scripture inscribed on, on text, on paper, and they would, uh, uh, on parchment, and they would roll it up and put it in this leather pouch, and they would tie it around their head. That's what a phylactery was. They did that to be seen by others. Look, I, got, I don't just read the Bible. I don't just read the Bible. But I carry it around on my head, right? <laughs> you know, like, you know, like Christians, you've, you've, you've heard the joke that this is a, re, a real Christian because they've they got a big Bible that they carry. Well, that, that was kind of like what the Pharisees were. They carried their Bible where, wherever, wherever they went, but they did it to be seen. That's what it says here. It says, go back there. It says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad. They're going to have a big, a broad phylactery so everyone can see. And their fringe is long. And they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. It's empty religion. It's focused on self. What do people think about me? And this is this group of Pharisees here. It's, it's tragic. They're, they're full of unbelief and they should be able to recognize they're the, supposed to be the caretakers of the law of God. This was supposed to be caretakers of truth and truth in the flesh stands right in front of them and raises Lazarus from the dead and they can't even acknowledge it. And they can't even see it because they're, they're blinded by their self-centered interests. That's what they said there. If, if, the, if this guy keeps going on doing miracles, we're going to lose our place. We're going to lose our position. Think about this. These men were called to do good. These men were called to represent God. Okay? Called to teach others about God. And God comes and does good. Right? He comes and does good. He heals the sick. He feeds the multitude. And these men, who are supposed to be caretakers of the word of God, and doing good 
and, and have the best interests of the people as the forefront of their thinking, they can't even see the good that Jesus is doing for people. They can't look past their position and their power. And at the core of who they are, they were meant to be those who would connect God to the people. And they couldn't even do that. That's how tragic their fall was. That's how tragic their fall was. I want to read this. This is a prayer to contrast the prayer of a Pharisee and a tax collector. And just a little background here. To the Pharisees, to a religious Jew, a tax collector was the worst of the worst of a sinner. And so a little background there. Tax collectors in that day, the Jews under Roman oppression, would, the Romans would hire ta- uh, tax collecting Jews to, to collect taxes from their own people. And so what these Jewish tax, tax collectors would do is, is that they would hike up the exchange rates, right? So the different currencies from the different regions where the Jews would live and they would have to pay taxes to Caesar. And so these Jewish people, Jewish tax collectors, would raise up the rates, the, the, the exchange rates to, for their own people. They would extort money from them and pocket the rest. And so tax collectors to Jews were the worst of the worst because they were stealing from their own people. Stealing from their own family. And so Jesus gives a, 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 a parable here to describe a Pharisee and a tax collector going to the temple to pray. Let's read this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Here's the story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed like this. God I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, right? Self-centered, empty religion. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Right? This is his prayer. This is his prayer to God. He's praying to God and he's telling God how great he is. What type of prayer is that? God, I'm coming to you this morning and I just want to tell you, like, I'm pretty awesome. Right, I've been really good to my wife this week. <laughs> like, I've been patient, I've been kind, I've been a good dad. I'm really killing it at work this week. And, and I'm really not like the bad people that, all, that are all around me. I'm not like that guy that I work with that, that steals time. I'm not like that neighbor across the street that I live from that's cheating on his wife. I'm not like all these other people, God, I'm pretty good. That's his prayer, right? It's crazy. It's empty. It's, it's, Jesus is painting a picture of empty religion here. That's self-focused. But listen to the tax collector. This is the man who is considered in his society the worst of the worst. But the tax collector standing afar off. Standing afar off. What, what did the Pharisee do? He's, he's, he's there. He's in the middle. He wants people to see him. The, the tax collector, he, he feels like, I can't even go close to church. Like, I can't go anywhere near there. Stands afar off. Would not even lift his eyes to heaven. Wouldn't even lift his head. He's going to start praying to God, but he's far off. He won't even want to lift up his head. He beat his breast. What does it mean that he beat his breast? When Jews were repentant, when they repented, they would tear their, their garment, their shirt, and they would beat their breast. It was, it was a sign of repentance. Woe is me. Woe is me. So he's afar off, and he's not lifting up his head, and he's beating his breast, and he's saying a true prayer. God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. That's, that's the beginning of true Christianity, true relationship with God right there. People always talk about the sinner's prayer. 
Is there a prayer that sinners can pray to get saved? The only sinner's prayer that can get you saved is the prayer that a sinner prays. That's the prayer. You guys got that? Don't twist on words there. The only true sinner's prayer is the prayer for mercy that that sinner prays. There's no set words. We see right here. This is, if we want to, we want to find a sinner's prayer, maybe this is it. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a sinner's prayer. It's, it's acknowledging that I'm a sinner, that I'm not holy, and God, you are. That's the sinner's prayer. It's the prayer that the sinner prays when he acknowledges who God is. That's what he acknowledged. He acknowledged by his position, by his posture. He came into the temple, and he didn't want to be in the center. He stood afar off, and he wouldn't lift his head. That's a position. When you're like that, you're recognizing, God, you're holy, and I'm not. And then he verbalized it. He said, be merciful, God. Be merciful. I need forgiveness. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And listen to what Jesus says. I tell you, this man, speaking of the tax collector, went down to his house justified. Justified rather than the other. What does it mean to be justified? To be justified is a legal term. You get charged with the charge and you go before the judge You've broken the law, and you plead your case, and the judge slams his gavel down, and he says, you are not guilty. You're justified. You're innocent. You're declared innocent. And so what Jesus is saying here, using this story as an example, he's saying that this man who acknowledged the holiness of God, that, he, that God is holy and I'm not, and he was repentant and recognized he was a sinner, that's how you become right, justified before God is that you acknowledge who he is, you acknowledge who you are, and you repent. That's, that's what it means to be a Christian. For everyone, listen to what Jesus says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So don't miss the point. Don't miss the point. A genuine believer in Jesus, they have their priorities in order. They're not self-centered. Their religious experience is not empty. It's not based upon self. They're like that tax collector. They recognize that in and of themselves, there's no righteousness, there's no goodness that I can do and perform to make God love me more than he already loves me. They don't miss the point. They recognize that they need help, that they need forgiveness. A genuine believer in Jesus has their priorities in order. It's Jesus first. It's Jesus first. Then it's others. And then it's their self. Jesus first, then others. And these Pharisees in this story here, they had that backwards. It was themselves first. They, they didn't care that Lazarus was raised from the dead. They didn't care that they just witnessed the greatest, listen, the greatest miracle that had ever happened in history up to that point was Lazarus being raised from the dead. And they couldn't care less. All they said, let's go back to verse 48. John eleven forty eight. If we let him go on like this, doing these miraculous signs, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Our place of power will be taken away. That is all they could see. That is empty religion and it is self-focused. It's self-focused. Unbelief blinds us to reality and empty religion is all about us. Third thing we see as we go back to the text. Let's look at John eleven forty-nine through 53. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, said to these people that are speculating about what's going to happen, they're going to lose their influence. He said to them, you don't know anything. You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand 
that it is better for you, for us, that one man should die for the people. Not that the whole nation should perish. So what's Caiaphas saying here? This is the high priest. He is... He, he was called to be the, the chief priest, the high priest of the whole nation, and he was called to be the caretaker of God's word, to reveal God's word to God's people, to go and make the sacrifices for the nation of Israel in, in the temple. And so he speaks, and, and he says here, he says, it would be better that Jesus dies. It would be better that he dies, because if he dies, then that means the whole nation is going to be okay. But if he doesn't die, then the whole nation could perish. So he's, he's confirming to them He's affirming that what they're thinking about Jesus being a problem, he's saying, yeah, it, it's gonna, it, it is a problem. And then he said this, verse 51, and then it says this. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied. This is so interesting. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather in to one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So the third thing we see here is that God can use evil men to accomplish his purposes. Caiaphas was not interested in Jesus doing anything good for anybody else. He was interested in Jesus dying. And it even says he prophesied what he spoke. It says he didn't speak it on his own accord. He spoke a truth of what God's purposes were, that God was going to die for the nation of Israel and not just for that nation, but for the nations abroad and that people would be gathered together back to God. And his motives were impure. His motives were what we read earlier. It would be better that one man dies. It would be better that Jesus dies. And this is such an interesting point. God can use evil men and has used evil men to accomplish his purposes throughout history. And at certain times during our, during our history in America, a lot of people say that whenever a new president is elected, if you don't like the president, you say, well, God's going to use that evil man to do something good. And, and people say stuff, crazy stuff like that, right? But it's true, right? There could be men that have evil intentions that rise to power. The Bible says that God raises up kings and sets kings down. He's, if someone has a position of authority, it's because God allowed them to have that. And God's purposes are bigger than our purposes. And God is in charge and God is in, is, is in control. Caiaphas' intentions were not pure. He was just like the rest of the Pharisees and the, and, and the Sanhedrin. He wanted Jesus out of the way. Better for one man to die than for the entire nation to be oppressed and killed. Those were his motivations. So don't miss the point. Don't miss the point that unbelief will blind you. That it is all about Jesus. That's the point of why Christ came. Don't miss that point. Don't miss it. And don't miss the point that God has not removed himself from our earthly experiences. We experience evil in this life, don't we? Don't we? If you live any length of time in this earth, you experience evil. And don't miss the point right here in what Caiaphas is, is saying and what's worded here. That God, God can and will and does work through bad circumstances and evil circumstances. He can get glory through any situation that, that, that you face. Don't miss that point. God has not removed himself from our earthly experiences. Have you ever felt that he has? What y'all, what y'all look up at me? Look, look real close. Have you ever felt that God has removed himself from your, from your circumstance? I have. Have you felt that? 
You don't like to acknowledge that. We don't like to acknowledge that. But there's times in our life where we feel that. We're like, God, where are you? Where are you? I prayed that this person would not die. I prayed that the cancer would be healed. I prayed that I would get the job and I didn't get the job. I prayed that this would change and this would turn. And we can feel, God, where are you? We can feel that God has removed himself from our earthly experiences. But it is not true. He is actively at work for the purpose. What's the point? Don't miss the point. What's the point? What's the purpose? For the good of his gospel. That's right. He's actively at work for the purpose of bringing glory to the name of Jesus. That's the point. Where we get tripped up is that we believe that the purpose of our existence is temporary happiness. Has anybody ever believed a lie like I have? Trying to sell a house right now. I don't know why I'm trying to sell a house. (laughs) Why does anybody ever sign up to sell a house? Crazy. Sometimes I can think that God, you've forgotten me here. <laughs> like this is just what well, this is. We are we're selling. This is our fourth house to sell, and um, we're selling it for good reasons. And um, trying to get closer to my in-laws because they babysit our kids all the time. He'll never listen to this, so I, I can say that. Well, I should laugh. That was funny. <laughs> um, but you know, you can begin to think. That life is about my temporary happiness. I can begin to think that, but it's really not. So what that the inspection of our house didn't go as I planned? And so what that these buyers came right before church tonight for an hour and a half walking through, asking me to change this and change this and fix this and fix this, and I'm irritated and I'm frustrated and and I'm telling this buyer that... I don't really like what the inspector said. I, I don't think it's true. <laughs> and I'm showing her all the things that are not true. And, and you, can just, you can just get so stressed out and you can begin to think that, you know, life is really about that, but it's not. It's not. You know, if I don't sell my house and they back out, it's, it's, it's okay. I'm going to stay where I'm at. God's going to get the glory. Life is not about our temporary happiness. And we can't buy into that lie. And where we get tri- tripped up is whenever things don't work out we begin to doubt God and his goodness. We say, God, if you're good, then this would have changed. If you're good, then the house would have sold quicker with no problems. If you're good, they would have been healed. If you're good, I would have got the job. No, God is always good. We're never promised our circumstances will be easy. Have you ever read that promise? I've never read it. It's not in the Bible. We're promised actually the opposite of that. Jesus promised that in this life, you will have trials. But he says, be of good cheer. Why? For I have overcome the world. So don't get tripped up when evil is around. Evil is going to be here because sin is here. But rest in the reality that God is here and that good overcomes evil every time. Amen? Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If people misquote that, verse a lot and they have it on stuff that they print you know decorative stuff and they misquote a lot and sometimes it says this and we know that those who love God for those who love God all things work for good and that's not true (laughs) all things don't work for good there's a lot of bad things that are not good in this life and all things don't work for good the word together is so important that is such a key point in this verse right here All things work together for good, for the good 
of those that love God and are called according to his purpose. There's going to be evil and there's going to be good. There's going to be suffering and there's going to be joy. And all that put together works It works together for your good and for his glory. And you grow in your faith and you're able to be a testimony in this life to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ. I want to end with this. Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring... Any charge against God's elect, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is indeed interceding for us. Who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Shall, shall distress? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or danger? Or sword? No, as, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? That is the truth. So don't miss the point. Don't miss the point. That Caiaphas teaches us in, in, in this lesson here. He didn't try to teach us this lesson. But he teaches us this lesson by what he said. Don't miss the point. God is in control. And he can use even evil men with evil intentions to fulfill his purposes. And evil circumstances and bad things can happen in your life. And God can use it to bring good into your life. Amen. So don't, don't miss the point. It's all about Jesus. I pray that we would never be like the Pharisees and scribes, that we would always recognize that it is all about Jesus. And it's not about us. It's not about us trying to prove who, who we are, that we're good, that we're great Christians, and we're checking off our list. It's not about that. It's about Jesus first. I pray we never forget also that God is in control. Amen. Amen. Lord, I thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for what we learn, even, even in this section here. That, d- that describes those who have rejected you, that refuse to acknowledge the reality in front of them. God, I pray, Lord, that you would help those that we know, God, and maybe that's even us. Maybe there's some of us here tonight, Lord, we have not acknowledged you as our Lord and Savior, and we are ignoring the reality in front of us. We're ignoring the reality that we're empty. We're ignoring the reality that we have no joy. And we, rec- we, we, we recognize that there's something missing in our life and we don't have peace. Lord, I pray that, that if that person is here tonight, that they would quit ignoring the reality of their condition and that they would see the beauty of Christ. They would see him for who he is and that they would love him. They would recognize that he loves them first, that he died for them, that he was raised for them, and he has a peace for them that passes all understanding. Lord, may they see it tonight. And may it be done. May they respond by faith like the tax collector. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And may that be done for the praise and the glory of the name of Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. I love you. We'll we'll be back. uh, uh, Ephesians 1. We're going to continue on Sunday. Amen.